Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We're traveling right now, so we've put together some of our favorite ocean science shows into one big package for you to listen to on your road trip. But there's a twist. That's right. You're not on a road trip. You're now on a pirate adventure. And you might recognize the pirates that you're about to meet from some of your other favorite kids' podcasts, like What If World and The Past and the Curious. Like, well, actually, it's those two podcasts. It's those two podcasts. It's those two podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) So our guest star pirates are going to guide you on a voyage to learn about science ships, whale snot, seal whiskers, ocean trash, and even whale sharks. So grab your trusty parrot for your shoulder and your eye patch, because you are about to board a pirate ship and set sail on the seas of science. Before we get to this week's episode of Tumble, we'd like to thank Noah Oldner, Aviva and Barrett, Ivy, and Canyon for becoming new supporters of Tumble on Patreon. And if you're waiting for a birthday shout-out, don't worry, you'll get it at the end of the episode. Just keep listening. And now, let's get to the show. Ahoy there, and welcome aboard me ship, the SS Explorer. My name is Captain Snowbeard, and I've sailed the eight seas in search of adventure, and... But, 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 Captain, uh, aren't there only seven seas? (sighs) Arg, that'd be my first mate, Pippin. He's been sailing with me these past few months, trying to learn a thing or two about how to be a real seafarer. Anyway, that's what I said, Pippin. I've sailed all ten seas. Yo, but Captain... (laughs) Anyway, the first mate and I used to be world-class pirates until we heard of Tumble, the science podcast for kids. Lindsay and Marshall's stories of science and discovery really inspired us to learn more about the science of the sea. So we made a deal with them. We? You scallywag! It was I who bartered and bargained with them. They said we can host an episode if I lend them my ship for the summer. We're sailing off to meet them now on the captain's private island. There, Lindsay and Marshall can take the ship and we can finally take a break. So join us, mateys, as we sail to my summer abode and we'll teach you all about the wonders of the sea. Today we're going to learn about a science ship, and, and, and seals, and whales, and garbage, and even a shark. Weigh the anchor and hoist the mizzen. We have science discoveries to make. All right, me hearties, the first stop on our voyage is the Joides Resolution, a science ship that explores the sea floor in the expedition of the science ship. It's not run by pirates, but we won't hold that against them. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We have an extra special episode today. We're off to sea on a scientific research ship. Woohoo! And don't even worry about getting seasick because you're not actually getting on the boat, you're just listening. We're going to hear from the deck of the ship itself 
How scientists travel the seven seas to discover the secrets that lie beneath the ocean floor. Today we're going to experience life on the Droides Resolution, a ship that travels on scientific drilling expeditions around the world. I'm especially glad this is a podcast right now because, you know, I really wouldn't know what to pack. Maybe a jacket? (laughs) At least a jacket. Come on. Pants. (laughs) Underwear. Five pairs, at least. (laughs) Well, fortunately, we have an expedition guide who's super pro. Yeah, so my name is Dr. Janine Ash. Janine Ash is a geochemist, and she's interested in the bizarre forms of life that live underneath the seafloor. Right at this moment, the ship is in the Gulf of California, between mainland Mexico and Baja California. Getting to be on this boat as an oceanographer is sort of almost like going to the International Space Station if you were an astronaut. Hmm, So it's like she gets to blast off to sea. Yeah, this is actually her third time on an expedition. Even with all her experience, the boat still impresses her. So it's big. Whenever I see it uh, in the harbor, it's big enough to take my breath away. It's like when I see one of those cruise ships with the giant water slides on deck. It's as big as a cruise ship, and it's got the scientific version of water slides. A gigantic drill tower built over a hole in the center of the ship that goes all the way down to the sea. The drilling derrick, which is a really tall, you know, pointy tower looking part on top of the boat, is more than 10 stories tall. Its primary purpose is to travel the ocean and explore beneath the seafloor. Hold on, hold on. Uh, what does she mean, explore beneath the seafloor? You, you can't explore beneath the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you can. Through the layers of sediments, the rocks and other material that's built up on the seafloor over millions of years. And this is where the drill comes in. It's not for oil. It's for the sediment layers. Almost like sticking a straw into a layer cake and pulling out those layers. That's what we're doing. This straw full of geological cake is called a core. Mm, yummy cores. Kind of tastes like dirt. A little soggy, salty with seawater. There's a lobster in one. <laughs> Would you eat it for your birthday is the question. <laughs> no. In fact, I'd probably be pretty disappointed. <laughs> I guess if I got a core and a cake, uh, that'd be pretty cool. What? Cake and presents? <laughs> Scientists study cores to learn about Earth's history, geology, and biology, and even its future, like what past climate change can tell us about what's happening now. They can also give clues about what life might be like on other planets. Whoa. So all kinds of scientists could be interested in them. Yeah, but only a few get on board to do the hard and fast work of collecting the cores. We can be getting a core every 35 to 40 minutes. And then as soon as those cores come on deck, um, as a geochemist, I'm interested in preserving the fluid and the gases that are inside the sediment. And those are the things that begin to change as soon as we bring it to Earth's surface. So. I have to be there to sample it right away and lock those samples down um, because those things are going to change if I don't get them. Man, that sounds intense. Yeah, it does. 
And that's why I asked Janine to record it for us. I wanted to get us as close as we can to the real scientific work of the ship. So we're going to hear Janine narrate the process of getting a core and sampling it. So as you listen, try to make a movie in your mind. Imagine yourself standing there next to Janine, watching as she explains what's happening in front of us. It's uh, 5.20 a.m. Um, I'm standing right now on an area we call the catwalk, um, which is as close as I can get to the drill floor without an escort. And so a core has just come up on deck, and you're hearing right now. Um, I'll let you listen. So there's all these chains and pulleys being moved around. It's windy out. Uh, Pretty big waves, actually. Some of the biggest we've seen. We have a heave compensator. The boat is vertically moving up and down with the water, but the part of the drill derrick that holds the pipe does not. And so we've had really calm waters, but today I can see uh, the heave compensator is moving matters of inches up and down keeping the drill pipe steady beneath us. All right, oh, I see our new core. It's coming up. The guys are getting their equipment ready to remove it from the metal barrel. They're clamping these big machines around the core. It's like a giant vice grip going to pull these two pieces of pipe, unscrew them from each other. All right, pipes are coming up. So they've got the core out of the pipe. All right, that's the cue. The driller just put over the intercom, core on deck, core on deck. And so this whole area I'm in is about to be filled with technicians and people like me uh, ready to sample. So um, I'll, I'll keep the, the mic on for this. In this part, I'm trying to do some gas sampling. So sometimes when the uh, cores come up, there's spaces in between the bits of rock or sediment and gases can be trapped there. And so I have this special tool that I use to punch through the plastic liner and then I attach a syringe to it um, and I I sample it um, that way. So that's what I'm gonna try to do. But you never know what you're gonna get. That's the plan until the plan changes. All right, so one, two, three, four, five technicians are bringing the core out past us see some spaces so I'm gonna take a sample let's see punching this tool through the liner okay hooking a syringe on and 60 mils of gas So I want everyone to keep imagining Janine with a syringe full of gas in her hand. 
hovering over a long tube of sediment that's just fresh from the seafloor. The gas just hisses right out and sediment comes with it. So it's like these little fountains coming out of the core all the way down, yeah, of methane and, and mud entrained by methane escaping. So it's like a insta-fountain. Yeah, and it smells. It smells like farts. That is exactly what it smells like. So it seriously smells like farts. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The gas down beneath the seafloor is making farts. <laughs> There's um, a ton of hydrogen sulfide that's made in all of these microbial reactions. So the microbes were the ones who farted. <laughs> Did they at least roll down a window? <laughs> Yeah, so that's not part of a scientific expedition that I imagined. <laughs> well, an expedition can be full of stinky surprises. So I know that Janine is doing the work she's doing on the boat because she has to get those measurements fast, but what is she going to do after she gets back on land? So a lot of the information that we collect on board is for the good of the scientific community. It will become public um, in about a, a year, and anyone can see and use this data for their own research. But I will personally have hundreds of tiny little bottles filled with sediment and methane. So Janine is taking those little bottles home with her to learn more about the extreme environments where tiny microbes live. She believes it could provide clues to what life might look like on other planets. So she went out in the ocean to learn about aliens. Yes, because this weird environment hidden beneath the ocean could be a lot like the conditions on other planets. It is perhaps a bit high-minded of me, but I like to think that by understanding Earth, that, that helps us sort of understand, you know, our place in the universe. She says that knowing if these gases are connected to life beneath the seafloor might someday help us understand if they're connected to life on the surface of another planet. Like, who or what is farting on Titan? <laughs> Hint, it wasn't me this time. <laughs> Yeah, so before we get to those farts in outer space, Janine is still out at sea. Let's end on this scene. At the end of her shift, Janine climbs the stairs to the top deck to gaze out at the ocean. So it's uh, 6.24 a.m. Uh, I'm on the very top of the boat. We are about to take off from our site. They brought all the pipe up from the seafloor. And there are literally hundreds of dolphins in the water around us. Just an enormous pod of dolphins is moving through right now. I've never seen anything like this in my life before. And of course, the sun is rising. Um, it's a, there's dolphins in every direction you look for as long as you can see. Just common dolphins everywhere. This place is wild, man. And scene. Beautiful. Oscar winning. We've got adventure on the high seas. Lots of machinery. Geology, chemistry, sediments, possible alien life. Dolphins, as far as the eye can see, what more could you want? So let's ask our listeners, now that you know what it's like to be on a scientific research vessel, would you sign up to crew on the Joides Resolution? If not, what's your dream expedition? 
Where would you go? How would you travel? And most importantly, what would you like to discover? Shiver me timbers, Captain. Why don't we have a super drill on our ship? Imagine the shipwreck booty we could uncover if we had a drill in Derrick. D.V. Jones' locker could become our own personal storage unit. Argue, scallywag. There's plenty to be explored with hardly any equipment at all. Avasti, just now, off the port bow! There she blows! Oh no! What is that? Geyser? Undersea volcano? Did Poseidon just have a sneeze? <laughs> You're on the right track, matey. It's a whale spout. A whale what? What's it doing? Let's find out in The Snot and the Whale. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're talking about blowholes, how they stay closed, and what comes out of them when they open. Blowholes are like the mobile showerheads of the ocean, in <laughs> case you need to take a shower in the middle of the ocean. They're actually for whales to breathe. So we'll find out how blowholes work and why scientists are studying the spray that comes out of them. Today's question comes from Noah. Hi, my name is Noah and I am six years old. And my question is how do whales reveal their blowhole? And also, how do they not get filled up with water when they're swimming through their blowhole? That's a really interesting question. I mean, what does keep them from filling up with water? I know I can't keep water out of my own nose. <laughs> So let's ask our listeners, how do you think that blowholes work? We'll give you a moment to think, and then we'll be back with the scientists who got close enough to see their secrets. Justine Hudson has one of the most amazing jobs on the planet. I study marine mammals, and I specifically study marine mammals in the Canadian Arctic. That means she gets to hang out with awesome creatures that live in the cold waters of northern Canada, like... Ring seals, belugas, and narwhals, walruses, and bowhead whales. I called Justine to answer Noah's question. Because her research has gotten her so close to a whale's blowhole, she's been covered by the spray. So did she still need to bathe that night? That's really the question. <laughs> so what's the answer to Noah's question? Give us the, the blowtown lowdown. <laughs> so the short answer would be that a blowhole is basically a whale's nose. So when it's at the surface, it has its nose open and it is able to exhale and inhale just like we are. And then right before it dives down into the water, it closes up its blowhole using muscles around the blowhole. And then that stops water from getting in. Okay, so instead of whales having to like lift up a flipper and hold their nose closed like this and then open them up, they've just got a single muscle that does that for them. 
Right, because they obviously can't swim and hold their noses at the same time. Yeah, me neither. That would be really useful. Whales are mammals just like we are, like humans are, so they breathe air. They don't breathe underwater like fish. They don't have gills, so they actually have to come up to the surface to be able to breathe, and that blowhole on top of their head makes it easier to do. So the blowhole is like the express lane of aquatic mammal breathing. Just blow and go. It's just a simple five-step process. (laughs) They come up, they exhale, and then they inhale, and then they close their blowhole, and then they dive back down into the water. Okay, but then, like, why is there always all that spray? Is that just part of breathing, or do they just want to do that so that whale watchers can find them? So that's a really good question. So when they come up to the surface and they exhale, they... They produce this cloud of, it's called blow. That cloud is a mixture of um, air that's inside of its lungs, but there's also a little bit of water in there. I think blow is a good word to describe what comes out of a blow hole. But wait, there's another word that Justine prefers to use, snot. You just know exactly what I'm talking about when I say snot. Like, everyone knows what snot is. When you say blow, not everyone's going to know what you're talking about, especially when you're talking about a marine mammal. Snot? So you're saying, like, all those whale showers are basically just snot rockets? (laughs) (laughs) It's not full-on mucus, but according to scientists, you can call the wet mix that comes out of a whale nose snot. When Justine was training to become a scientist, she heard about something called a snot bot. And I had just happened to read this story about a snot bot. I don't know if you've ever heard about the snot bot. Um, I've not heard of the snot bot, but I'm extremely curious to learn what it does. Basically, they're scientists that fly drones through blow of large whales and they collect snot from their blowhole. Scientists flying drones to collect whale snot. <laughs> I just let's just like step back and take a moment to reflect upon the things that scientists do just on a day-to-day basis. It's awesome. <laughs> and I thought that that sounded like the coolest project ever. So I told my supervisor that I wanted to go collect snot from beluga whales, and she's like, "Cool, go do it." And that's kind of how it started. <laughs> Wait, so when you're a scientist, you can just tell your boss, I would like to go collect some snot from the cutest little whales on the planet. And then the boss is like, okay, cool. Let me know how it goes. I mean, there's an extremely practical reason behind collecting beluga whale snot. Besides needing a reason to sing baby beluga? No, it's actually because of climate change and shipping, moving stuff by boat around the world. We wanted to look at shipping because the Arctic is warming because of climate change. And because of climate change, the ice-free season is getting longer. And it's predicted that more ships are going to be traveling through the Arctic. And this, of course, can have an impact on marine mammals that are living in the Arctic. Okay, so melting ice from climate change equals more boats in the Arctic Sea. Yeah, and that's concerning because boats make noise and they can also hit whales. This is already a common problem for whales who live in warmer waters. But Arctic whales have not experienced it as much. So scientists want to see how these whales are reacting to it. That makes sense, but why do you need to collect whale snot for that? 
I decided to collect snot because in snot you can measure a hormone called cortisol and that's related to stress. Basically, Justine wanted to try and measure this hormone to see if shipping is having a bad effect on the whales. Oh, okay. So snot can tell you more than if whales just have a runny nose or maybe are allergic to dust or something. But how, how do you collect it? Do you use flying robots like before? Well, Justine came up with a plan to collect whale snot without the flying drones. But... To do it, she had to get on a plane. So I flew up to Churchill, Manitoba, which is this really beautiful, unique place. That's where around 54,000 beluga whales live. Oh, that's like a lot of beluga whales. And Churchill is also home to a variety of other awesome Arctic animals. It's known as the polar bear capital of the world. So you can go there and you can see polar bears up close you can go see thousands of beluga whales. You can see Arctic foxes, caribou. All right, so you can see all the awesome things that like being cold. <laughs> totally. Churchill is on a big inland sea that's about halfway between the U.S. and Canadian border and the North Pole. So it's like super cold. And we got onto a boat every day for a month. Justine and her research assistant had a small boat that was about 16 feet long, or 5 meters, about the length of a beluga whale. What kind of boat? Like a rowboat? Maybe one of those stand-up paddle boards? No, it's one of those inflatable rubber boats with a motor. And we went out onto the water and we would find groups of beluga whales. And we would approach them, but then turn off our engines, and then they would approach us. What, so the belugas would, like, cuddle up to the boat? Yeah, they seem pretty friendly. That's so cute. And we had this really long pole that had a little Petri dish at the end of it. And what we would do is we would put that pole with the Petri dish over the blowhole of the whales as they came to the surface. The setup was kind of like a selfie stick with a clear plastic dish at the end of it instead of a smartphone. So they're literally holding it above the blowhole like somebody waiting for a baby to blow their nose. Exactly. And as they exhaled and they, you know, released that plume of blow, we would collect that sample. The first time Justine did this was actually the first time anyone had collected snot from a beluga whale. So the fact that it happened was a big success. Like, yay, I got snot! Lots and lots of snot, and not just on the Petri dish. Now, as the day goes on, you get covered in, in beluga blow. Like, your sunglasses are just dotted with little snot particles. But it's, it's okay, because it's super exciting. <laughs> it's like the snot collector badge of honor. You know it's been a good day when you're wiping snot particles off your glasses. <laughs> so what happens to the snot once it's been collected? So once we collect a sample on the boat, we put the lid on the Petri dish, wrap it up, put it in a cooler, and then at the end of our field season, we fly it back down to Winnipeg, which is where I'm located. When she was back in the lab, Justine tested each sample to see how much cortisol was in it. So she could see whether or not the whales were being stressed out by boats, right? Right. But first, she had a big problem. A problem that has to do with how a blowhole closes. When a beluga is just at the surface, when its blowhole is closed, 
the blowhole forms like the shape of a bowl and water sits on top of the blowhole. And so the muscles that close the blowhole are beneath the opening? Yeah, it's kind of like if you had a soup bowl that opened up at the bottom. So the blowhole holds water when it's closed. So when it actually exhales, it blows out its snot onto our Petri dish, but it also blows out a bunch of water. And we're not able to tell how much water is in our sample. Not being able to tell what's blow and what's water is a big problem. Why? Basically, it means that they can't tell how much of the stress hormone in the snot has been watered down or diluted. Oh, so like, if you wanted to measure how much food coloring was in a glass of water, you'd have to know how much water was in the glass and then divide it out. But if you don't know how much water is in the glass, then you just can't do the math. Yeah, you can't even make an equation. So Justine knew this was going to be an issue thanks to other scientists' experiments with whale snot. So we measured something called urea um, to try to use that as a way to correct for the amount of water in a sample. Justine hoped that doing this step could help make her equation work. Urea is a chemical compound found in pee. Oh, so urine, urea. I guess when you're doing a snot experiment, you might as well just stick in some pee. (laughs) (laughs) So so did it work? No. Unfortunately, we couldn't say one way or the other if it worked. So it was a no-go on the water versus blow. Does that mean the experiment failed? Technically speaking, yes. But even though Justine wasn't able to answer her question about whether shipping affected beluga whales, she did accomplish a lot. Um, One of the biggest things that I learned with this project is that sometimes you're not able to answer your question, but just because you have a project that didn't go the way you wanted it to doesn't mean that you didn't advance the the knowledge or the, the field. So in her experiment, Justine proved that you can collect snot samples from a beluga whale in an easy and some would say fun way. (laughs) So that helps other scientists who are really just beginning to study whale snot as a way to understand how whales are doing in the wild. So getting sprayed with snot wasn't all for naught. (laughs) Yeah. And Justine gets to call herself a professional snot collector and work in one of the most amazing places on earth. Honestly, being up there made me feel like I've made the right decisions in life. Um, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Studying Arctic marine mammals is one of the most amazing things. I feel very lucky. tried something that didn't work? It doesn't have to be a science experiment, but really just anything in your life. Even though you didn't accomplish what you set out to do, you probably learned something from the experience. So make a list of your own failed experiments. Then, next to each one, write down something that you learned from them. You might be surprised that those failures have taught you some pretty important lessons. And a whale is not the only company we have out here. (laughs) Look over there, Captain. There's a pack of seals on that beach. Ah, seals. Creatures with the finest beards of the sea. Besides pirates, of course. Here, look through me spyglass. 
Wow, they do have some pretty intense whiskers. Are they like pirates? Do they grow out their whiskers so they can have a cool name, like uh, Black Whiskers, the most feared seal of the sea? So much to learn, Pippin. Seal whiskers are one of the finest navigational tools since the compass. Let's listen to the science of whiskers. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the science of whiskers. Surprisingly, animals just don't put them on in order to look cute and pose for videos. (laughs) Those long facial hairs are like an animal's sixth sense. From seals to mice, we're off to explore the wonderful world of whiskers. Baltimore, Maryland. My question is, why do seals have whiskers? I mean, it's obviously so they can join the whisker club. (laughs) We all want to be in the whisker club. That's the only reason men grow mustaches. Everybody just wants to belong. (laughs) Listeners, what do you think is the answer to Kara's question? And how would scientists study whiskers? Think about it. Before we got Kara's question, I had no idea that people study whiskers just on their own. But that all changed when I found Dr. Robin Grant. Yep, so I'm Dr. Robin Grant. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in comparative animal behavior and physiology. That's a fancy way to say whisker scientist, which means she studies and compares how different whiskers work, including seals. So I look at all different mammals, so lots of fluffy animals. So just like she spends all her days looking at adorable animals. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of us do. That's true. (laughs) But whiskers are more than cute facial features. They're actually a big part of an important sense for many mammals. Touch. So even though I might be like a, a whisker biologist, if you like, what I am doing is studying the sense of touch in animals. Uh, And it just so happens that for most animals, and that happens to be their whiskers. Wait, so she's saying that whiskers are like facial hair that feels? Yes. That's crazy. It actually, it totally blew my mind. And Kara's question of why seals have whiskers is a great way to explain how they work. First, think about where a seal lives, mostly underwater off the coast. You can imagine it being quite sandy and murky and a little bit mucky. Um, So they can't rely on their eyes very much. When they dive under the water, their nostrils close together. They don't rely on their sense of smell. So what they're doing is relying on their sense of touch using their whiskers. So seals are most of the time swimming blind, except for their whiskers. Yeah, and they have incredible whiskers. So they have about 30 to 35 whiskers on each side of their face. Whiskers are big, thick hairs. And in fact, they're they're so thick in seals, they almost look kind of plasticky. They're really, really thick, much thicker than the hairs on our head, much thicker than your cat's whiskers as well. Seals' whiskers aren't smooth like hair either. So they have these kind of bumpy in and outs that go all along all of their whiskers. And what this is for is to make them really stable in the water. And even more amazingly, they help them find food. 
And also they're so sensitive that they're able to detect the tiny movement that fish make as they swim through the water. What? These whiskers are so sensitive they can feel the wake of a fish? Like we can see the wake of a boat? Yes, exactly. And the fish swims in a wiggly line. The sail will follow it exactly. Man, that's some ninja-level stalking ability. I know. <laughs> Wait, but how do we know that that's what the whiskers are doing? Like, I'm assuming seals aren't just telling scientists their stalking secrets outright. No, the scientists have to offer bribes. They're like dogs. Um, so all they want to do is have lots and lots of fish. Robin told me about an extremely fun-sounding experiment she did with seal whiskers. So what we can do is actually train seals to do different tasks and see how they use their whiskers. So for example, um, I did a, a task that was training a seal to detect different sizes of disc. A disc? And so like something like a frisbee? Yeah, basically. And these different sized discs are a stand-in to find out how do seals know whether something in their environment is big or small. And that helps us learn about the many ways seals use their whiskers. Right. So in her experiment, Robin worked with a seal named Mo. And so what would happen is Mo lived with all his friends in the pool. And then I'd come along and I'd call him out and say, come on, Mo. And he'll hop out the water and come over to me. Is there a scientific prize for most adorable study method? <laughs> this would win. And then in front of me, I have a setup. And there's a little ball that he pops his nose on in the middle. And then on either side, I put two different objects. And one will be a big disc and one will be a small disc. And what I'll do is I'll pop uh, headphones on him so we can't hear what we're doing. And I'll pop the blindfolds on him so we can't see. So he's only using his whiskers. Wait, so the seal's wearing headphones and a blindfold. <laughs> hope we have pictures of that. <laughs> I yeah. hope. There's video. And then I'll tell him to go. And then what he'll do is he'll explore on one side, touch the big disc, and then he'll explore on the other side and touch the small one. And then he'll go back and really kind of push over uh, the big one and say, it's this one. This is the big disc that I found. Uh, and then you give him lots of fish and lots of praise, and then you, try, you swap them all over and you try it again. Robin filmed every single one of these trials with Mo. And after enough trials, Mo went back to his friends in the pool, and Robin went to review all the video with her colleagues. And then when I looked through all the videos, which was like hundreds and hundreds of videos, we found that when they touch something, they orient, so they, they always move right to the middle by their nose. So when Mo was exploring the disc underwater, like he was really touching it with his nose? Like why? Now the bit near their nose has loads of whiskers in. It's really, really densely packed, full of little short whiskers. And what they do is they stick all these whiskers onto the object, and then they count how many whiskers contact the object. The more whiskers that touch the object, the bigger it is. Whoa, so are they actually counting? Like one whisker, two whisker, three whisker, four... Five whiskers, six whiskers, seven whisker, more. That's a big fish. <laughs> They're not saying the numbers in their head. It's kind of an intuitive way of putting together a picture of their murky world, just like we use our senses to navigate our world. We have amazing brains which take you new information from our eyes and our nose and our ears and our hands, and seals are the same. They just get to use whiskers to help build a picture in their minds. Right, and it helps them make decisions about things like where to haul out on rocks or how big a fish might be. 
Man, that's so cool. So why doesn't my beard work that way? So human facial hair doesn't really count as whiskers, even though we totally call it that. But our ancestors were truly whiskered. Probably the first mammals, the mammals that aren't even around anymore, they had whiskers. Each whisker has a muscle that controls its twitching and movement. And even though we lost our whiskers over the course of evolution, we got to keep the muscles. The humans have remnants of these whisker muscles uh, in our faces. If I grew a beard, could I train it to feel things? You're like, oh, wind's blowing from the east. You can do that with your face anyway. And I think a bus is passing a mile away. <laughs> How long are these whiskers? How long very, is this beard? Very long. <laughs> All right. Well, just as evolution did away with whiskers for humans, different animals evolved different kinds of whiskers. If at home you've got a guinea pig, you can see that they have quite a lot of whiskers. But actually, they're quite small compared to their body. Whereas if you have something like a mouse or a rat or a hamster, they actually have enormous whiskers compared to the size of them. You may have noticed if you've stared into the face of a cat, it looks like their whiskers are laid out on a grid system. And it seems like the best whiskered animals, so the ones with the longest whiskers um, and the most whiskers, usually have this very regular organization of whiskers. Uh, which is weird as well. I will agree that cats are weird, and I'll add their whiskers to the list of reasons why. All right, but compare that to dog whiskers. Dogs' whiskers are kind of randomly laid out and pretty short. That's because dogs don't use their whiskers. Their sense of smell is much, much more powerful than their sense of whisker touch. It's a good thing they don't actually need to touch the poop they're sniffing with part of their faces. <laughs> Though based on most dogs I've known, they probably wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, so you can start to look and think about how long they are, uh, how many they are, and how organized they are. I guess that seems like something we could do just by looking at adorable photos of whiskers on the internet. I know I'll be doing that. <laughs> so is that how Robin studies other types of whiskers? Well, she's looking at tiny movements with special whisker technology. And what we're interested in is, is the movement of the whiskers. So whiskers can move backwards and forwards in a process that is called whisking. Whisking? Even the technical terms are cute. I know. I'm, I'm literally never going to be over this. <laughs> and a dormouse, for instance, can move their whiskers up to about 10 times per second. That's like... A lot of whisks. <laughs> so to slow down the whisking and figure out how animals are actually using their whiskers, Robin uses a fancy high-speed camera along with special lighting to film in the dark when many of the best whiskered animals are most active. The high-speed camera basically makes sure that we can see everything really nice and crispy clean. So coupling this, this these amazing cameras and the special lighting. We're able to capture them doing all sorts of cool things. Robin actually builds special mini arenas for the animals to demonstrate different whisking skills. Sometimes we just film them in a, in a kind of open arena and see them exploring. Sometimes we build special climbing arenas to look at how they use their whiskers when they climb. That's so great. So she's really studying all types of whiskers in all kinds of situations. Yeah, but she told me seal whiskers are her favorite type of whisker. Well, that's pretty high praise coming from a whisker scientist. 
So let's ask our listeners, what's your favorite type of whisker? And now that you know how whisker scientists look at whiskers, can you find well-whiskered animals? Remember, well-whiskered means that they have many long, organized whiskers. Can you start your own whisker rating system based on the animal that you see? 10 out of 10 would whisk again. Thanks to Dr. Robin Grant, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Animal Behavior and Physiology at Manchester Metropolitan University. And thanks to Kara for sending in her awesome question. We'll have more from Lindsay's interview with Robin on our Patreon and CastBox Premium podcast feeds. It's just $1 a month to learn so much more from every Tumble episode. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if people had whiskers? (laughs) I think it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? We'll also have more about whisker science on our blog, including a video of Robin's experiment with a blindfolded, headphone-wearing seal named Mo. That's on sciencepodcastforkids.com. How far are we now? All I see is, well, the sea and a plastic water bottle. Arg, there is no crime worse than pollution. In the past, even one ounce of waste in the water could have you walk in the plank. A good pirate never litters. Oh, is there anything we can do about it? Aye, perhaps. Let's see on the voyage of the ocean trash. Have you ever heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? Is that like a eye patch that's worn by a pirate in the Pacific that he found in the garbage? (laughs) (laughs) Like, arr, matey, I found this eye patch in the garbage. (laughs) I don't know why somebody would throw it away. It is a perfectly good eye patch. (laughs) No, that would be much better than what it actually is, which is... A swirling soup of trash in the ocean that spread over an area twice the size of Texas. Oh, no, matey. It is hard to be a pirate in trash. (laughs) Oh, is that my treasure? No, it is just a sock. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We'll explore how the trash we throw away ends up in the ocean, and how scientists are studying what happens to it. And is it possible to clean it all up? Isla is a listener from Hawaii who loves the ocean and is worried about ocean pollution. I want to see if I can help out with stopping pollution because I really want to do that. Isla's mom told us whenever they go to the beach, they pick up trash together. But Isla wants to know about the trash that gets into the water. When trash is already in the water, is it possible to... Like, take the trash out of the water and pollution would be gone? Or is pollution stuck in the water forever and ever, even if we took the trash out? 
Well, that's a great question. I mean, I always wonder about all the pollution we put in the ocean and will we ever be able to get it clean? So, I mean, can we? I think that we can clean up the ocean. I'm really hopeful about doing that. And I want to help. Okay, so why do we need to know about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in order to clean up the ocean? Is that the only place where you can find trash? Well, when trash gets washed off the shore or falls off boats or gets swept in through rivers, it all ends up in the garbage patch. And it never disappears. It just breaks down into tiny, confetti-sized pieces of trash, which are really hard to clean up. So it's not like a floating island of trash? I kind of always imagined it that way. No, it's not like that at all. It's more like a soup of trash in the middle of the ocean. So I'll let somebody who's been there describe it for us. Can you tell me about the very first time that you went out and saw the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? The garbage patch is very surreal because you are days from land in any direction. It's just like blue horizon everywhere. That's Jenny Brandon from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. She studies that hard-to-clean-up, broken-down plastic called microplastic. So is that like plastic toys for very tiny people? (laughs) Unfortunately, no. (laughs) So she's traveling days on a ship to find trash? Yeah, she has to go out into the garbage patch herself on a research ship to collect samples of these little pieces of plastic. She saw nothing but blue sea for a few days, and then things started popping up in the water. It's not like I didn't think we were going to sail into trash, but to actually see it for myself and be able to like pull out these fishing nets out of the ocean that were like covered in barnacles and actually see the horizon and then just see like a tire bob by was just so surreal. Wow, so like you're in the ocean and you see nothing but whales and sharks and mermaids, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) And then suddenly it's like a tire? Yeah, and what's living in the ocean, besides for mermaids, are living with our trash. They should be living on seaweed or driftwood or something like that, and now they just live on, like, a beach chair or something. She's seen tiny crabs, mussels, and barnacles living on trash, and fish eating the bacteria and plant life that grows on it. So trash is really changing the ecosystem of the ocean, and probably not for the better. That's really sad. Like, did she try to clean up the trash while she was out there? Well, she was just out there to pick up samples of microplastic to study, but the crew of the ship really wanted to stop and pick stuff up. It's hard to not collect these large fishing floats that are going by and these, like, huge balls of rope that you're like, we can't just leave that in the ocean. Like, we want to pull it up. So we just kind of had this collection on the back deck of trash The trash they collected grew into a pile four feet tall on the back of the boat. When the ship docked in Hawaii, where Isla happens to live, no one was excited to see what they had cleaned up because now it had to go somewhere. So it's this whole burden for Hawaii that they just happen to be in the middle of this trash that most of it's not theirs. Almost none of it's theirs. (laughs) 
So if the trash isn't coming from Hawaii, where is it coming from? It comes from everywhere. Some of it is obviously from fishing boats. A lot of it comes from like rivers and harbors and beaches. It also comes from shipping. And some of it is what we call nurdles, which is like a super weird word. <laughs> so it's like nurdles an insult for sailors. Like, you're a nurdle. No, you're a nurdle. <laughs> you're a nurdle. Don't call me a nurdle. You're a nurdle. Fine. <laughs> Actually, all of our plastic stuff starts out as nurdles. <laughs> there are these little plastic beads and they get melted down into whatever. If you have plastic toys, those are made from nurdles. And when they get poured into shipping containers at harbors, a lot end up going over to the side and just fall into the water. So wait, they just drop off the side? That's nuts. I know. The other thing you might not realize is what goes down the drain in our home is part of the problem too. So it's like microbeads in your toothpaste or in your face wash, and then clothing fibers is actually a lot of it. These kinds of tiny plastic beads and acrylic fibers, like from fleece jackets, are small enough to make it through the filters that clean our wastewater. And so when the cleaned wastewater gets back in our environment, it's still got lots of plastic in it? Yeah, and it eventually all flows out into a trash vortex. Oh no. It gets to the middle of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch by currents, almost like a sink drain. So what makes it that way? Like, did a part of the ocean decide to take on the trash, like when they were having a meeting and Poseidon was like, listen, Mr. Pacific, it's your turn. I've had people living on me for thousands of years. <laughs> no, no, it's what happens in something called a gyre. A gyre? Yeah, it's a system of ocean currents that circulate ocean water around the entire planet. Currents and the winds push together and they kind of push all the water to the center. Okay, so that's how trash gets pulled out from the coast into the way middle of nowhere ocean. Exactly. But then when there's big storms, it can kind of get pulled out of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and then it will hit places like Hawaii and other Pacific islands. Some of the trash Isla's picking up with her mom probably came from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And it's not that this is only happening in the Pacific Ocean. It's actually a problem in every major ocean. So there's actually five of these big gyres in the ocean. And plastic accumulates in all of them. Man, that's, that's really crazy. So how long has this been happening? That's part of what Jenny is trying to figure out. Some of the plastic has been in the ocean so long, it's broken into those tiny little pieces we were talking about. Microplastics. Because right now when you pull out microplastic, you don't know where it came from, what it used to be, how long it's been in the ocean. I actually look at the chemical signature of it and try to figure out how long it's been degrading in the sun. How does she find out when that trash went out to sea? With probably the most awesome tool known to science. I uh, shoot lasers at the plastic, <laughs> and then I look at um, the chemical bonds in the plastic and how they've changed over time. Lasers! I love it when scientists get to use lasers. Me too. Pew, 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 pew! <laughs> <laughs> so she takes those uh, plastics from the ocean that she shot the lasers at, and then she compares the ocean trash to plastic that she put out herself in the sun to dry, where she knows exactly how old it is. So what she finds out will help scientists understand how long it takes plastic to get into the garbage patch. 
And then do we know how long it's taking things to degrade from big stuff to, to little stuff? You know, is the plastic only a year old or is it like 30 years old when it's the size of confetti? A really important thing that scientists want to know is how the plastic affects sea life. They know that it's changing how plants and animals live. Uh, like living on a beach chair instead of seaweed. And we know they're eating plastic. It's the same size as the stuff that they're supposed to eat. And that means it's in the bodies of the fish that we eat that come from the ocean. And so those are kind of the questions that we're like just on the cusp of understanding um, whether we're actually eating plastic. Whoa, so in a way, the plastic we put in the ocean might come back to us. Ugh. Yeah, one scientist found plastic in fish stomachs, but she's still figuring out if that plastic gets into the part of the fish that we eat. We don't eat fish stomachs usually. So the garbage patch reaches us, even if the trash is out of sight, out of mind. But going back to Isla's question, like, is there anything that we can do about it? Can we take trash out of the ocean or once it's in there, is it stuck in there forever? What would you say the answer is to that? Right now, we don't have a very good solution to take the little stuff out. Um, the little plastic is the same size as little plankton and fish eggs and larvae and all things that we need in the ocean. And so most cleanup solutions right now would clean up too many other things we need. But there is an idea being tested in the Netherlands right now by a guy named Boyan Slat. He was only 19 when he came up with the idea of putting a bunch of nets out in the middle of the ocean that catch the plastic but let the current go through. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, in theory. But some scientists are nervous about it because they don't think that it can catch microplastics without catching that tiny ocean life too. We're at an engineering standstill right now. No one's figured it out. But I wouldn't say that forever we won't be able to clean it up. I'd just say right now we don't know how to clean it up. That means we need a lot of new people to help come up with creative new ideas. Exactly. And there's stuff you can do right now. So what can Isla or someone like Isla do if they want to help? That is a great question. They can definitely use less plastic um, just so that there's less trash that we have to deal with in the future. If you want to do more, like Isla, we'll have tips and organizations that you can get involved with on our website at tumblepodcast.com. We also want to know from you, how would you clean trash out of the ocean? How would you clean trash out of the ocean, Marshall? <laughs> Probably with a net. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what if we had aliens come in and just suck all the trash out of the ocean? I mean, all we'd have to do is just call up the aliens. Which, I mean, last time I saw them at a party, I got their number, so... Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. Let's call. Sorry, they used... They had iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we want to hear your ideas. Drawings, designs, descriptions, books, treatises. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you have, please send them to us. At tumblepodcasts at gmail.com. Thank goodness for scientists like Jenny Brandon. Definitely. Uh, uh, hey, Captain, oh, what's that floating off the stern? More ocean trash. You must have gotten too much sun if you can't even recognize a shark when you see one. 
Shark? Oh, don't worry, me boy. It's a whale shark. One of the gentlest creatures you'll find in the sea. Let's get on a boat in Mexico with the case of the whale shark party. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the biggest fish in the sea, the whale shark. So come with us to the Gulf of Mexico. That's where we'll meet a scientist who helped discover the largest whale shark party that anyone has ever seen. Hashtag squad goals. We know that whale sharks are the biggest fish in the world. They're as large as a bus, but they're confusing. Are they a whale or are they a shark? Are there whales called shark whales or is that just not a thing? We asked our listeners to help us understand whale sharks. A whale shark looks very large. A whale shark looks similar to a shark and a whale. They look like these huge whales, but they're actually sharks and They have these white spots on them. I don't exactly know why, and they're kind of like a brown kind of color. The spots on the body are unique, like fingerprints are to humans. A whale shark eats krill. They eat krill plankton. That's all I know. Whale sharks eat plankton and fish eggs. They are very gentle. They're filter feeders. The teeth are very small and harmless to humans. That was Jalen High, Owen Sanders, and Julia Morgan. Thanks for answering our questions and sending in your recordings. Now, let's go to Mexico. Vamanos! So can you tell me a little bit about where we are right now? Yes, this is Marina Hacienda del Mar. We are in Puerto Juarez. I'm from here with the park to look for, for whale sharks. That's Rafael de la Para a marine biologist who's leading me across the docks of a marina in Cancun, Mexico. And well, this is the Grampus. That's my boat. Cancun is at the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. That's the part of Mexico that sticks out into the Caribbean. It sort of looks like the postcard version of a beach paradise with pelicans flying overhead, palm trees blowing in the wind, and white sands fading into azure ocean. Got a little bit poetic about that. <laughs> but every summer, whale sharks show up to feed in those clear waters not too far from the marina. They're migrating animals, which means that they spend winter in another location. Since we couldn't actually hang out with the whale sharks, I decided to do the next best thing interview a scientist who studies whale sharks. I don't know if you want to jump or, or stay just right here. I think sitting in the boat would be great. It might cut down on the wind. Okay, let me jump first and then I will help you. The Grampus is a boat built for fishing. Rafael was actually a fisherman before he became a scientist. But sometimes his two passions collide. At least that's what happened when he found himself in the middle of a squad of whale sharks. We were doing sport fishing and out of a sudden we were surrounded by... Uh, several hundreds of them, like 300 or 400 of them. 
Wait. He goes out to fish and suddenly he's surrounded by gigantic sharks. Actually, we got stuck in the middle. Raphael was about to pull in a big fish the moment the shark showed up. We were having on, on the line a, a mahi mahi, a, a dolphin fish, a dorado. And uh, it was really hard to, to land that. Actually, we had to cut the line because we were not able to move. Were you annoyed that you had to let go of the fish that you were about to pull in? Yes, that, that time, long time ago, when we were fishing, yes, we were very annoyed. So when you went out to fish, did you have any idea that there were going to be whale sharks there? No, not at all. Uh, well, we've been watching from time to time on the way back after fishing. We were watching one or two. Rafael would even stop his boat sometimes to jump into the water and swim with the whale sharks. Whoa, I'll bet that's cool. Yeah, but this giant group of sharks was like nothing he'd ever seen before. Well, so what's going on? Why, why was that happening? Every summer, this big population of whale sharks gathers off the coast of Cancun. It's kind of like their summer home. So, but what do they do there? They, like, kick off their work shoes, trade their suits for some board shorts. Well, they're there to eat. It's almost like an all-you-can-eat buffet of phytoplankton and tuna eggs just appears in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and when it's gone, they move on to their next spot. Guess this all-you-can-eat buffet is over. It's amazing to discover that the whale sharks have the ability to know exactly where the food is and be there at the right time, the right place. So it's like the whale sharks know where the hot restaurant is. It's the restaurant that's been hot forever. Because fishermen had stories of seeing these gatherings for generations back. That's, that's the thing I always hate about the whale shark restaurants. There's just always a line out the door. <laughs> After Raphael got over losing his big fish, he got super curious about whale sharks. And here's the thing. Even though they're big and beautiful creatures, scientists know very little about them. Whale sharks have been studied, uh, but recently, about uh, 15 years. So what we knew about them when we began to study them was very little. Almost every single question that is being asked, you can convert that into a new project. Rafael had a lot of questions. One of the most important questions should be how many of them are coming. So he decided to count them. So that's really easy. He just has to set up a table at the door to the whale shark restaurant and count the sharks as they come in. It's not exactly like that. It's like, excuse me, do you have a reservation? <laughs> <laughs> Raphael's first counting technique was attaching a tag with a number to each shark. The tags are made out of heavy-duty plastic. We need to use a tag in order to not uh, repeat the same shark that we've been working with. Well, so you would know which one is which and if you'd counted it before. Right, but putting a tag on a shark is like trying to give a shark a piercing. Their skin is a lot thicker than ours, but some people thought it was mean to the sharks. I think piercings are just something that would help them look more fashionable. But uh, that has been gone now in, in clear waters. We're using photography. So he's snapping photos of whale sharks? That's cool. It's cool and also more complicated than that. Raphael and other scientists get into a small airplane and fly up to do what's called an aerial survey. Oh, so they're taking photographs from above. 
Right, and in the photographs, the whale sharks look like submarines about to surface. Whoa. So do they just develop the pictures and then count like, oh, there's a shark? One, two, three sharks. All right, all done. Not really. They use scientific models. That have been adopted from astronomers. Astronomers use these models to count stars in photographs taken by telescopes. And marine biologists borrowed it to help count whale sharks in the ocean. Whoa. So you can count sharks just like you can count stars? Well, this method helps them keep the sharks straight as they count. Because their patterns are unique to every uh, individual and is what we call a fingerprint. Oh, that's what our listener Owen said. Their dots are like fingerprints. So how many whale sharks did they count? From the Earth, we've been able to count up to 400 of them. 400 sharks just in one place? Like, what does that even look like? It looks like the sea is just crawling with sharks. Raphael published a scientific paper with the title, An Unprecedented Aggregation of Whale Sharks. So that means no one had ever seen a gathering that big. But setting a whale shark record, why was that important to know? Well, the size of the gathering helps scientists understand whether whale sharks have a healthy population, whether they're gaining or losing numbers, or holding steady. So, like, if only 30 sharks turn up one year, they'll know something's wrong. Right. And then they can search for clues about what's happening and how they might be able to help the whale sharks. So are whale sharks an endangered species? Actually, uh, last year it was considered as a vulnerable or threatened species. Now it's, it's endangered species. So we should do what we can to help keep these whale shark parties raging. Like, turn up the music, put out some salsa. Whale shark parties sound like a lot of fun. The food is free. <laughs> <laughs> and because whale sharks are so friendly to humans, lots of people decide to join in. Raphael actually takes people on his boat to swim with the whale sharks. I really want to do that. Me too. When they first jump in the water and watch this huge animal with the, the big mouth coming towards them, you cannot imagine how many different kinds of uh, screams could come out from the snorkel. Raphael told me that his hope is that this amazing experience, swimming with the sharks, inspires people to care about the environment and even contribute to research. Every single person jumping in the water with a whale shark, if they have a camera or a, a cell phone that can take a, an image, we're encouraging them to submit that to whaleshark.org. Since every whale shark has a different pattern, researchers like Raphael can tell when a shark in Cancun shows up in Belize through a website called whaleshark.org. So that gives them even more information about their migration. Yeah, and the whale sharks tell us something too. Because if you sign up at the website, you can actually get emails from a whale shark. Every single time that we spot the same animal again, we will let you know by an email. So it's, it's something quite rewarding when you start receiving emails from the sharks. That uh... Wait, you get emails from sharks? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> you can say so. I really wouldn't mind getting emails from a whale shark. I kind of wonder what they'd have to say. Dear Marshall, Plankton, really good today. See you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>
you can actually adopt and name a whale shark that will tweet to you on Twitter. Not only email you, but tweet to you on Twitter. Hashtag shark life. (laughs) Hashtag living that shark life. Your donation will help researchers buy a satellite tag that can track your whale shark. Say your whale shark is named, I don't know, Lindsay. So you can say, okay, Lindsay, now it's, it's in Belize, and uh, next year it's going to be in Honduras, and six months later it's, it's uh, tweeting from Mexico. Okay, so you went to Cancun and named a whale shark after yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're friends on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, it it was weird, but I think Lindsay's a great name for a whale shark, okay? <laughs> I guess you could do worse, like Mortimer. <laughs> Actually, Mortimer is kind of a good name it's, for a whale shark. It's a wonderful name for a whale shark. <laughs> there are almost 8,000 whale sharks available for adoption on whaleshark.org. And I'm extremely excited to say that we have decided to adopt one. Right now it's going by the name MXA130, and we need your help to give it a real name. Send in your suggestions for what we should name our whale shark at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Then, if you're a member of our Patreon, you can vote on your favorite. You can also adopt and name your own whale shark. Visit our blog at tumblepodcast.org for all the details and links, and also to find out how you can take a trip with Raphael to swim with whale sharks. It's coming pretty close to us. Aye, it is. Wow, it swam right past us. I wonder where it's going. More like where it's running from. There's a massive wave coming. (gasps) Oh no! What do we do? What can we do? Let it take us. I should learn to swim! Carried us to shore. We're here. It's me island. We're alive. Aye, as close to paradise as this be, it is still on Earth. Well, I'd say you learned a fair bit on your last day before our vacation. Yeah, I sure did. Let's see. We learned about science expedition ships and whales, and about seals and their whiskers and whales. And there's not. And we can't be forgetting about the darn ocean trash. Or the lovely whale shark we saw. What was your favorite part, Captain? Ah, oh, it had to be the seals. Their whiskers are just incredibly nifty and pirate-worthy. What about yours? Oh, the whale shark was so cool. After hearing about them, they seem way less scary. Let's ask the listeners. What was your favorite part? 
What are some of the things you learned today about the sea and its creatures? Even though the first mate and I are going to relax on me island for the summer, that doesn't mean we're going to stop exploring and learning. Isn't that right? Oh, of course, Captain. There are so many other creatures on the sea and the shore to investigate. So, to everyone who joined us in our maritime adventure today, remember that there is always something new to explore and learn about. That was a ton of fun. We should let pirates take over our podcast more often. I didn't even mind when they made us walk the plank. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a fun swim, just with a few sharks. It's like a diving board. What's the big deal? (laughs) (laughs) In case you didn't recognize the voices, our pirate captain was Mick Sullivan of The Past and the Curious, and his trusty first mate was Eric O'Keefe from What If World. They're among our favorite kids podcasters. If you want to hear more from Eric and Mick... Check out their podcasts, What If World and The Past and the Curious. Subscribe to their shows wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Mick Sullivan and Eric O'Keefe. Hadley Jevin, our awesome summer intern, wrote the script and produced this episode. Sarah Robertson-Lentz made the episode art and is our head of partnerships. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I edited this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that super long episode. Now it's time for some birthday shoutouts. To Zeke, happy birthday on August 7th, Nature Lover, Love Mom and Dad. Happy birthday to Marley on August 11th, Stay Curious, Marley. On August 14th, happy birthday to Persephone Schmitter. And on August 15th, happy birthday, Charlotte. Keep learning and asking questions about the world around you. I have no doubt you'll be a great scientist someday, and your mommy loves you. And finally, happy birthday to Zachary on August 16th. May you always be curiouser and curiouser. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. To get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, just go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast and support us at the $5 level or higher. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. And join us next time for more stories of science discovery and more birthday shout-outs. <laughs>